It's a beautiful thing to see God working in people's lives. And before we, get, before we jump into today's message, I simply want to say, it's not by coincidence that you're here this morning. It's not by chance that you heard the stories of these men that are getting baptized. At the end of this service, I'm going to give an opportunity for those of you that know that you need to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, and you've never made that decision. Uh, these men that got baptized at some point in their life had to say, yes, I surrender my will. And I believe that God is working on some of you, drawing you supernaturally. You sensed it, felt it inside. You can't explain it. You can't define it, but you know it's God. And at the end of this service, like these men did, I'm going to give an opportunity. Maybe it's your day, your time, your season to say yes to Jesus Christ. And if you go through a Bible study and preparation, also to take the step of believer's baptism. Father, I thank you that you are here today. We welcome your presence. We pray that you would speak to our hearts like, well, Father, like only you know how. We pray that the spiritual ears would be open, that our eyes would see that which we cannot see in the natural, but we can only see in the spiritual. I pray that you would speak to us, whisper to us, and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I still remember the first time I felt it. I was seven years old. My parents and my family were visiting a city that they were thinking about moving to. And so I went with them. We were exploring downtown. We were in a plaza. And I got caught up in looking at the uh, windows of some stores. I believe there was a, a toy store there. And I was checking out all the toys that were there. And then I turned around and said, hey, Dad, did you see? And I looked. And I couldn't see dad. Have you ever felt that? The panic of where are they? That sense of I'm alone here. And I said, hey, dad. Hey, hey, hey mom. Nowhere. I looked around frantically. I started to gaze. I, I, I ran over to this corner where I thought I saw them last. Then I ran over to the next corner. Hey, are, are they there? I couldn't see them. And I, my, my face started to curl up. My eyes started. A lady came up to me. This was in Spain. A lady came up to me and said, Mijo. How many of you call your kids Mijo? Mijito. Are you okay? What's going on? I'm like, I'm alone. My, my mom, my dad, they abandoned me. And she said, calm down, calm down. And then they were right around the corner. I heard my dad say, hey, Mark, where you been? I wanted to say, where you been? <laughs> the panic of feeling. First time in my life that I can recall the panic of feeling I'm alone. I want to talk to you about loneliness today. I want to talk to you about being alone today. I want to talk to you about what some people call the silent epidemic of millions of people, especially during this time, that feel the sting of loneliness. COVID has only enhanced that, magnified that, caused people 
living in a crowded city to feel isolated and alone. Mother Teresa is quoted as saying, the most terrible poverty is loneliness and the feeling of being unloved. It has been called the quiet devastation. Millions of people live in sparse contact and research tells us that it has a extremely detrimental effect on our health, on our mental condition, and on actually dying early. Uh, some studies actually show us that isolation, sparse contact with people, and loneliness is as bad as, well, I, I borrowed this illustration. It's as bad as, anybody got a light? No, I'm not gonna. It's as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, almost a pack of cigarettes a day, loneliness. I'm not going to tell you who I got this from, what usher, what greeter I got this from. Uh, I'll give them back to you. Or having heavy alcoholic consumption. That the, the fact that you are alone or isolated or disconnected from people causes you to die early, causes you to lose your mental faculty early, causes you to exist with less energy less joy, has a breakdown on your psychological, mental, and health condition. Because you were never created, never engineered, never made by God to exist in long periods of loneliness. Social psychologists define loneliness as the gap between the social connections that you would like to have and those that you feel like you experience. A national survey by a health uh, insurance company tells us that they found that 61% of Americans report feeling lonely. 60 1%, if we were to do a survey among this congregation and ask, hey, how often, hey, do, have you felt it? Do you feel it often? Is it chronic within your life? Chances are that 61% would respond, I regularly feel isolated and lonely in my life. Technology and engineers thought, well, let's connect people. And so they came up with devices that we call smartphones and social media. And so now we discover that people are more connected than ever before. But guess what? Here's what psychologists and sociologists have discovered that since 2012, since we all have, since the advent of smartphones, that we are now hyper-connected in our loneliness. Now an 18-year-old goes to bed and before they go to bed, they're scrolling through their Instagram account, seeing their likes, getting on Tic Tac scene, which is the latest, uh, checking out their grandmother's Facebook, and they just check, uh, go through, scroll down, and they are hyper, hyper connected. Wake up in the morning, check their Facebook, uh, check their Instagram account, check who's liked them, what they've said, what they've done, see the pictures of people smiling, and so they're in there, they're waiting in line, and they're checking it. They're in their car, and sometimes checking it, so we are hyper connected, feeling like, okay, now people are are really connected. Now we are hyper-connected.
disconnected and more lonely than ever in our hyper-connectedness. In fact, they discovered that college-age girls, especially women, men as well, but especially women, the anxiety, the depression level, suicidal ideation has escalated since 2012. And the only difference they can tell is that now we're hyper-connected, looking at everybody else's life that looks so happy, so good, yet our life seems so empty, disconnected, and meaningless. I'd like for you to take your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 16 as I talk to you today about the desert of loneliness. Genesis chapter 16. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, right at the front of your Bible. This story is a compelling story, a story I think that many of us can relate to. All of us in this auditorium have experienced seasons and times of loneliness. The woman that we are introduced to in this story, her name is Hagar. She's not a famous person in the Bible. Some of you that have studied scripture know who she is, but most of you probably draw a blank when I say the name Hagar. It tells us in Genesis chapter 16, verse 7, and the angel of the Lord, the angel of the, of the day or He found her near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the the road of Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Let me give you the background of this story just so you understand. Abraham, many of you have heard of Abraham. He's called the father of faith. God chose a man, and out of that man, he promised that he would raise a nation. He's called the father of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel came out of Abraham, But it started with a man, a man with a calling upon his life, a man that felt like God was calling him to take a land and to create a people. Abraham was married, or at the time he was called Abram, he was married to Sarai, or Sarai. Uh, Their names later were changed to Abraham and Sarah. Abram was a wealthy person, successful. He had amassed land and people and prospered and sheep and goats and cattle, and he had become wealthy. But there was one thing in his life that he was missing, one thing that made him feel empty, one thing that made him feel like I'm not fully complete. He deeply, desperately desired to have children, yet him and his wife were unable to conceive. He called out to God. He prayed out to he prayed to God and God appeared to Abram and he said, "Your name will be changed to Abraham." Abraham means the father of a great nation. And the Lord told Abram or Abraham, "I will give you children 
and your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore or like the stars in the sky, too numerous for you to count. Abraham got excited. His wife laughed because they were already advanced in years. But Abram believed God. He was a man of faith, and he said, I believe that I'm going to have a family, and my family will be great, and I'll have descendants. And so with expectation and joy, he moved forward. The first year, he looked for his wife to be pregnant, but was disappointed that she wasn't. The second year came by, and he was excited about it, full of hope, and she wasn't pregnant again. The third year went by. The fourth year, the fifth year, the sixth year, the seventh year, the eighth year, the ninth year, the tenth year went by, and still no child. By this time, Abram was 85 years old. His wife felt the pressure she was disappointed. We want a child. He's not coming. So his wife had an idea. His wife said, well, maybe, maybe the child that, that we're supposed to have is not going to come through me. Maybe it's going to come through, well, here's my servant girl. And back in those days, they would have concubines and multiple wives at times. So Sarah took her servant girl who was from Egypt and said, maybe our, your child is going to be born through Hagar. Her name was Hagar. And so she said, sleep with Hagar. Maybe she will give you, maybe God meant that it's going to come through her. And so Abraham slept with Hagar. And lo and behold, it was not too much long later that she started to show and discovered that Hagar was pregnant. In the beginning, it was great joy, but with time, the more her belly started to show, the greater confidence Hagar got, the more attention Abram showed to her, and the more jealous Sarah became. And it came to a point where Sarah was upset and mad and mistreated her, and she said, I don't want this woman in my house. And Abraham said, do whatever you need to. So she mistreated her, and Hagar ran from the house. We find Hagar pregnant, alone, confused, abused, mistreated, without a sense of where to go and what to do in the middle of the desert, alone and afraid. That's where we pick up the story of what it means to be afraid and alone in the midst of the desert. If you're taking notes today, I want you to write this down. Number one, I want you to understand <clears throat> Scripture is very clear about the fact that God calls us to examine where we are coming from and where we are going to. Look at the verse. Verse 7. In the middle of her loneliness, in the middle of her desperation, in the middle of the desert, God shows up. It says the angel of the Lord, but later on we discover that it's actually God himself. Often in the Old Testament, it refers to as the angel of the Lord, but then we discover that it's God. Theologians call it a theophany a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. Christ, before he was incarnate, manifesting himself as the angel of the Lord in a physical form appearing to someone. 
She has an appearance of an angel that comes to her in the middle of the desert, and this angelic being says to her, as she's desperate, alone, and afraid, he asks her, where, where have you come from, and where are you going? You know, those are two compelling questions. Where have you come from, and where are you going? What are your roots, and what is your destiny? You see, our, our roots, our story, our background, it tells us why we're struggling with our current condition. It also explains our feelings, our struggles of the present. It doesn't dictate our future, but it explains our present. Where we're going speaks to our vision, our sense of future, our sense of hope. When you can answer those two questions, where have you come from and where are you going? There's a sense of story, narrative, a sense of I know who I am and I know where I'm going. If you have trouble answering where have you come from and if you have trouble answering where are you going, then oftentimes it spills over to a sense of purposelessness, a sense of I don't know who I am and I don't know where I'm going and I don't know where I belong and I don't know who God is, and I don't know who I am, and oftentimes a sense of loneliness. Where have you come from, and where are you going? Two compelling, powerful questions. You see, as we get into Hagar's, Hagar's story, we discover that well, her background, she didn't choose it. Her background is affected by the toxic, bad choices of other people. It's affected by a woman who, and a man, who have a God-given dream and destiny, but try to fulfill it in the power of the flesh. Abraham, instead of doing it God's way, decided he couldn't wait for God's way, and so he compromised, and he tried to make a God-given dream happen in the power and the flesh of, the of his own strength. You know, how many of you know that you can have a God, good God-given dream and try to do it in your own power, and it can hurt and affect a lot of people in a bad way? Because of his desire to have children, which is a good thing, his desire to have descendants, which is a good thing, but he went about it in a wrong way, a fleshly way, not a God-given way. He was tired of waiting, and because he was tired of waiting, he tried to do it in a way that would speed up the process, and as he tried to speed up the process, there were people that got hurt in the process, a young lady that's pregnant, a wife that's mad, and a man that's compromised, and sometimes we have a good God-given dream that we try to fulfill in an illegitimate way. How many of you know that you can have legitimate desires that you try to fulfill in illegitimate ways? When you try to fulfill a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way, there's always someone that gets hurt. You feel lonely. You feel like you need someone to love you. That person shows you attention. They're already married. 
but they give you the line and the story of how terrible their marriage is and how they really don't love their spouse and how their spouse really they're just in it because of the kids and you say, I really need to be loved. I feel so lonely. This person and I connect so good. They're so lonely. They're... And so you fulfill a legitimate desire of wanting to be connected in an illegitimate way of someone that should be connected to their spouse. That's a legitimate desire that's fulfilled in an illegitimate way. The Bible tells us that the angel asks, Hagar, and by the way, can I tell you, when God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. Hello. When God says, where are you coming from? God knows where you're coming from. He knows your story better than you know your story. He asks Hagar where she's coming from and where she's going because this is self-examination. He wants her to tell the journey. He wants her to explain her story. He wants her to understand that there is a beginning and an ending, that he has his hand in this story. And I want you to see how Hagar answers. He's asking for a story of beginning and destiny, and she gives him the name of a person who she thinks has sabotaged her story. He says, where are you coming from and where are you going? And she says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. How many of you know that sometimes we can blame a person for sabotaging our destiny? And can I tell you this? People can affect your story, but no one has the power to control your destiny. No one. They may affect your story. They may make it difficult, but there's no one that controls your destiny besides you and God. Hagar was fixated on the damage that Sarah had done to her life because Sarah had kicked her out of the house. You may be here today, and your story is wrapped up in some toxic family upbringing, Maybe your father was an alcoholic. Maybe there was addiction involved. Maybe he left when you were five years old. Maybe you feel like some of your trouble, some of your struggle, some of your challenge has to deal with the abuse, sexual or mental abuse that that uncle uh, did to you when you were 10 years old or nine years old. Maybe you look at the dysfunction of your background, the brokenness of your story, the uh, the injustice of your upbringing, and you say, see, I'm this way because of my background. And I want to say your background and your story, your dysfunction has to do with your struggle, but it never, never, never ultimately dictates your destiny. It depends on what you do with your struggle. God says to Hag Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? Number two, write this down. Not only do you need to look at your story, articulate it, describe it, tell it, but you also need to face your challenge with a new sense of God-given destiny. Look at what it says in verse 9. 
Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much so that they will be too numerous for you to count. Here's what I want you to see what the angel does to Hagar. The angel tells Hagar that the way forward is backward. The angel tells Hagar, Hagar, you need to face your problems, not run from them. Because you have a destiny, but you cannot fulfill your destiny until you're willing to face your issues. Many people spend their life running from their challenges and their issues. And they're never able to step into their God-given destiny because they keep running from the issues that God is saying, deal with it. You have to go back to go forward. And oftentimes we run. We run because there's pain there. We run because there's fear there. We run because we don't want to go there. But sometimes we have to go back and forgive that person that has hurt us. Sometimes we have to go back and deal with the issue that we're running from. Sometimes we have to go back and confront the people that have damaged our lives. Sometimes we have to dig into the deep, dirty mess of our past and acknowledge, yeah, that that's a part of our story, but it doesn't define us. Sometimes we have to go back before we move forward. If you continue to run from your past and never deal with your past, chances are you'll end up You'll end up addicted to something that will help you ease the pain of the past that you're running from. Most addicts that I talk to are people that are running from their past or running from pain that have never fearlessly taken an inventory of their past and said, I'm going to deal with it in my life. I can guarantee you, if you're running from pain, you will become addicted to painkillers of some sort or another. It could be your work. It could be a relationship. It could be, um, it could be a line of cocaine. It could be mollies that you pop or whatever you choose. But unless you deal with your pain, you typically get addicted to something that eases the pain within your life. The angel of the Lord told Hagar to do something that she did not want to do. He said, go back to the toxic mess and face it. But then he told her, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Can I tell you something? When you start understanding that you have a purpose, it gives you strength and courage to face things, obstacles that are hard for you to face. If you don't know that you have a purpose, if you can't see your mission, then you'll typically run because there's nothing driving you to face the issues that you have to deal with. The angel told her, you will have a child, and through this child, descendants will come. I don't know if you remember the story of Elijah, but in 1 Kings chapter 19, 
Elijah's a man with a destiny, a purpose. He's a man of God. He's doing some great things. And suddenly, life doesn't turn out the way he expected. There's a turn. He thought the nation would turn back to God, and they didn't. And suddenly, he gets gripped by fear because he's disillusioned. And so he starts running from Jezebel, running from his problem. And the Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 19 that he runs to the desert. He finds a broom bush. He sat under it, and he prayed that he may die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I've no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. What happened to Elijah? Elijah lost his sense of purpose. And when he lost his sense of purpose because he was disillusioned, then he had no energy to face his problems. And he felt alone, defeated, discouraged, and suicidal. Harvard psychologist... Jeremy Noble says that there's three types of loneliness. Number one, there's interpersonal loneliness. Interpersonal loneliness is, is I don't have a friend. I don't have someone to tell my troubles to. Interpersonal loneliness is feeling like you don't have anybody that you can call up and talk on the phone and just share your heart that really understands and cares about what you're going through. It's feeling like I don't have a friend. I don't have friendships. I don't have people that I can be honest with. I may have buddies. I may have coworkers, but I don't have a friend, someone that I can connect with at a deeper level, someone that I can share my heart with. That's interpersonal loneliness. But they discovered that there's another kind of loneliness called existential loneliness. Existential loneliness has to do with bigger questions like, do I fit into the universe? What's my purpose in life? Is there meaning to my existence? Do I have a mission? Do I live in a random world where that has no meaning or sense or up or down? Ex-existent, ex-existential, get it out. Loneliness is about your purpose. It's about why you live. It's about what you live for. And then there's a third type of loneliness. It's societal loneliness. The first kind of loneliness is, do I have a friend? The second kind of loneliness is, where do I fit in? Do I have a purpose? Is there meaning to life? The third kind of loneliness is societal loneliness, as the Harvard professor says, which means, do I fit in? Is there a group that welcomes me? Do I have a tribe? Do I belong somewhere? Is there a group of people that I say, yeah, these are my people. This is my family. This is my connection. This is my tribe. And listen, people struggle at three different levels with loneliness. You may be here today, and maybe you have trouble getting out of bed in the morning. Because if you don't have a sense of purpose, if you don't know that there's meaning to life, and when people get depressed, when people get depressed, They feel like a dark cloud and fog comes over their life. Uh, People that are depressed 
have trouble getting out of bed in the morning. They have trouble just eating and brushing their teeth. They have trouble just finding the energy just to do the basic things in life because deep down inside they're wondering, is there meaning to life? Why do I live? Is there a purpose to my existence? Is there anything compelling about what I do? Is there something worth living for? Or is this just all random? Depression tells you life is meaningless. Loneliness tells you no one really cares. I don't have a friend. No one would miss you if you were gone. Societal loneliness says you don't belong anywhere. You don't have a tribe, a family, a group of people. You're an outcast. There's something broken about you that makes you not belong to anything. Can I tell you something? Listen, I want you to hear me well. Oh, I want you to hear me well. I want you to know that God created you, designed you, engineered you to be a person that has a purpose a family, a destiny, that you are loved more than what you could ever imagine or fathom. That the lie that, yeah, I want you to know that. Listen, God brought some of you here today so that I could tell you that today, that there is a purpose in life, that the universe is not random, that there's a sovereign God that has known your story, that he cares about you, that you are not alone. In fact, this sovereign God of the universe desires to love you and be with you so much so that he sent himself via the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, wanting to be with you day in and day out, that your name is known, your story's known that you have a family, that you are engineered for relationship. God has designed you that way. When you live in the purposes of God, you find your family, you find your purpose, you find your relationship. I don't want you to walk away not knowing that. Hagar. needed to know that she had a purpose and that if she understood her purpose, she needed to fight for her destiny by facing her challenges. Number three, if you're taking notes, write this down. Remember that you have a God-given purpose and mission Look at what it says in verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael. This is the first time in the Bible that a child is named before he's born. There are many other instances in the Bible. John the baptizer was named John by the angel before he was born. Jesus was named Yeshua before he was born. He was told what his name would be and other people in the, New Test in the Old Testament. But this is the first instant in the Bible where God himself says, name your child this. And you know what I love about this story? She's a pregnant young girl 
thrown out of her house in the middle of the desert, and God shows up to her, letting her know you're important. You're not alone. And I love the fact that God, well, before this is before they had blood tests to determine the gender of a child. God in his sovereignty knows that it's going to be a boy. He tells her in advance, name him Ishmael. This is the name of your child. You know, my first child, when my, when my wife got pregnant, we, we didn't want to know until birth. I wanted it to be a surprise. But how many of you know you want it to be a surprise, but you still want to know? They said, well, are you going to find out? No, no, but if you have any ideas, I told the nurse, like, what do you think? So it's like, I don't want to know, but give me your best shot. And so the nurse, as she examined my wife, she says, well, if I were to guess, she said, the heartbeat of boy tends to be a little bit faster than the heartbeat of girl. I don't know if that's true or not, but she told us, I think it's a boy. And I thought, okay, it's a boy. I'd go up to my wife's belly and I'd say, hey, champ, how you doing, buddy? Hey, dude, can't wait to play with you, man. You're going to be strong, valiant, courageous. We're going to do some things together. I'd rub her belly and say, come on, dude, let, don't be in here too long. The day that she was born, the doctor pulled the baby out and said, it's a girl. She said, it's a girl. And I said, it's a girl. My wife was kind of all drugged up because she said, it's a girl. And it was like a switch of gears to me because I was like, hey, buddy, champ, dude, how you doing? And then it was like, hey, princess, get the male nurse out of here. My baby has no clothes on. Um, this whole protective uh, deal kicked into me because it was my baby daughter. God has known you, your personality your character, your spirit, since you were in the womb of your mother. God has known your name before anybody spoke your name. Before you were ever held, you were known by the creator of the universe. Before, people before you developed your personality, God knew your personality. God has known you, listen, loved you, cared for you, valued you before anybody else even knew that you existed before your parents knew they were pregnant. The God of the universe already knew your name. God was reminding Hagar, Hagar, the child that you have inside of you, you barely know who they are, but I know his name is Ishmael. And listen to what he says. Listen, this baby's not even born. And look at what God says. He, he's a boy. His name is Ishmael. For he, well, yeah, uh, the Lord has heard your misery. And he, talking about her son, he will be a wild donkey of a man. Some of you say, hey, he's talking about my son. Um, his hand will be against everyone, 
and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live in hostility towards his brothers. Hagar doesn't even care about that. She just knows the child that I have is known by God. My story is known by God. He, I have a purpose. I am delivering a child who will give birth to a nation. God has heard my story. I have a purpose and a destiny and a plan in my life. In the middle of her desert, she did not know this. God had to speak it into her life. Number four, and lastly, verse 13 she gave this name to the Lord. I love this. The Lord gives a name to her baby, and she gives a name to the Lord. Listen. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. In the Hebrew, it's El Roi. El Roi. El has to do with God. We say Elohim, referring to Almighty God, El. And Roi means who sees. Now here's what I want you to know. For the first time in her life, Hagar realizes that she's not invisible. For the first time in her life, she realizes, I'm not anonymous. There is a God who sees me. Now, God had always seen her. God had always been aware of her. God saw her in her mother's womb, but she did not know that God was seeing her. Listen, she says, I have now seen the one who sees me. Man, I'm talking to someone today. I'm talking to someone today who feels like God has never seen you, but today God is revealing himself as the God that sees you. You are not invisible. The God of the universe sees you. He knows you. You may not know that he sees you. You may not have been aware that he is aware of you, but for the first time of your life, maybe you come to the realization, this outstanding, powerful awakening that God sees you, that you are not a anonymous, that you have a name, that he has loved you and seen you before you knew that he existed. He has known your existence and that he sees you. You are El Roi, the God that sees me. For some of you, that's a revelation today. The enemy has kept some of you with the lie of anonymity, you have believed that you are invisible. You have bought into the lie that there is no purpose to your life, no meaning to your existence. You have struggled with getting out of bed. You have withdrawn from relationships because when you have no meaning to life, you have no energy for relationships. You have struggled with motivation because 
If you have no purpose and no meaning, you have no drive to carry you forward. Because you have not understood. You have not had a revelation moment. You have not understood in the middle of your desert that you see the God that sees you. Hagar awakened. This was her changing moment. This is what gave her power to go back to a toxic, dysfunctional family. This is what got, gave her energy to get back from the desert and to face an uncertain future with a sense of hope because she understood I have been seen by a God who sees me. I'm walking into my dysfunction knowing that the God of the universe sees me. I am known. I am seen. I am loved. I have a purpose in my life. I have a destiny to my existence. I have meaning in life because the God of the universe has designed me with purpose and meaning. And so therefore I can walk into my future with a sense of value. She named the place where she had that encounter. Verse 14 says, that is why the well where they drew water was known as Birlaihe Roi, which means the well of the living one who sees me. Let me close with this. Some of you are here today because you needed to hear me say, God sees you. You are seen. You are not invisible. He sees you. He sees you. You are not anonymous. You are not a number. You are not an it. He sees you. Hagar had a moment when she realized that she had just seen him who sees her. You may not physically gaze at the face of God, but my prayer is that today, spiritually, you would sense the presence of the God of the universe who speaks your name, that you can leave this place saying, I've, I see him who sees me. I'm going to ask that you stand with me. When you know he sees you, 
and he knows your name. There's purpose, mission, meaning, design to your existence. When you know he sees you, there's value to your life. Because the great, awesome God of the universe has said he loves you, has called you by name. As we close our time together, I would like to end this by allowing you to tell God, Lord, today I know you see me. Maybe you struggled with the lies of purpose, meaning, significance, and loneliness. Maybe you've battled recently with understanding that he knows you and he sees you. But today, as I've spoken these words, I prayed at the beginning that God would open your heart, that you would know that God is speaking to you, that you would sense that God, in his, in, in his unique way, is speaking directly to you. And there's some of you this morning that you know, I came here because I needed to know that God sees me. Life has been spoken into my soul. And as we, as we close our time together, I'm going to open up this place. We, we have a carpeted space at the front. We call it an altar. An altar is a place to respond to, to his word. If God has spoken to you today and you know that God is speaking to you today, maybe you struggled with that desert of knowing that he sees you. I guess I, I'm inviting you to come to a place of prayer, to get on your knees before the Lord, and just to acknowledge, Lord, today I acknowledge that I see him who sees me. I've been living under a lie that my life has little purpose. Maybe I've been living under a lie of isolation that no one cares, or a lie of loneliness, feeling like there's really no one. But God, today I acknowledge that you see me. And I'm going to let the healing and the power of you seeing me give me that energy and strength that I need. But today I, I acknowledge that I see him who sees me. There's, there's healing in that. There's power in that. And so in just a moment, I'm going to open up this altar if you need to come and just get on your knees before God and say, Lord, I acknowledge that you see me. I see him who sees me. And maybe you're here today and you saw the testimonies of those that got baptized and you say, Pastor, I, I've never given my life to Christ. I've known about God. I've known and, and I've sensed him drawing me. I've known like one person shared, I know about God, but I've never known God. And I'm tired about knowing about a God. I want to know God. I don't want to know about the God of the universe. I want to walk with the God of the universe. I don't want to hear about him. I want to know him. And the Bible says 
that God calls, He draws. It's called the Holy Spirit, drawing you unto Himself. I don't have to convince you because if, if God has been drawing you, you know He's been drawing you. You may not be able to describe it, explain it, but you know that there's something inside of you that's been drawing you to God. You've heard, you've been aware of signs and people talking and things pop out and your, your soul is thirsty for God. You're saying, I want God. And the Bible is clear that it happens a very simple way. As these men shared earlier, it happens by saying, I believe, God, that yes, you love me. And you sent your son Jesus to pay a price that I could never pay on my own, the price for my sin that separates me from you. And today I come and I surrender my life to you. I don't want to live without you anymore, God. I want you to be the Lord and the Savior of my life. I turn from the way that I've been living and I choose to live God's way. Come, Spirit of God, inside of me and change me from the inside out. The Bible calls that being born again. And I don't have a lot of time to, to convince you or talk to you about it. It's not joining a church. It's not joining a religion. It's surrendering your life to the living King of kings and Lord of lords. And then we follow up with baptism, which means my old life is gone. My new life has come. And I, I simply want to say, if you are here today and you say, Pastor, I need to give my life to God. I know it. I need to give my life to God today. I'm not going to ask anybody to bow their heads or close their eyes because if you can't choose to follow him in a church, you'll never do it outside. But if you're here today and say, Pastor, I need to follow God, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand and say, I know it's me. I need to follow God. I need to follow God. I need to make a choice to follow God. In this auditorium, just raise your hand up. All right? Okay? Anybody else? People saying, I need to follow God. I need to follow the Lord. Okay. And if you're in the overflow, I may not have seen you. But I'm going to ask this. Where's Pastor Mike? Pastor Mike, could you come? I'm going to ask that if you, if you need to, if, if you're saying, I want to follow God, and you raise your hand, then I'm going to ask that you just get, make your way out of your seat. Debbie and Pastor Debbie and Mike are here, and they're going to lead you in prayer. Just make your way out and say, hey, I need to pray with these people. I need to pray with these people. So as we start singing, yeah, just make your way over. You need to pray right over here. Yeah, I'll give you a moment to make your way over. Yeah, I'll give you a moment to make, make your way over. All right, we're going to close with a song. As people are praying over there, there may be some of you that, as I said earlier, need to come to this altar and say, God, I see you that sees me, and today I acknowledge that. I don't want to live with the lies of isolation and loneliness of purposelessness. Today I get on my knees and say, I see you who sees me. This altar is open. If anybody needs to come and pray, let's sing. We have prayer partners ready to pray with you. If you need to say, God, I see you that sees me. I'm not going to live with that lie that my life doesn't have meaning. I'm not going to live with that lie of loneliness today. I'm acknowledging I see him who sees me.